If we'd walked down to Liverpool One this afternoon and conducted a survey amongst all the people that we found there, canvassing their opinion on what it means to live in comfort, what might they say? We asked them to rank. What's your top three things? What's your top five things? What are the top ten things that you could have in life that would mean that you are living in comfort? What might they say? If we were to do that amongst Christians, what might they say? If I was to do it amongst you, what would you say? What does it mean to live in comfort? Well, of course, most would be thinking along the lines of being comfortable. And I suppose a variety of things would come into their minds. Uh, having those physical items and possessions which remove any perceived hardship in life. So, your home and its contents, having a car, the things that you find every time you open the wardrobe door, uh, the food in your fridge, all of those kinds of things, well, that's what it means to be in comfort. As well as that, they might mention the absence of conflict in relationships, being on good terms with people, in your family, amongst friends and neighbours, with colleagues at work. Those kinds of things, that they lead to a comfortable life. And perhaps for others, um, being free from any kind of mental or emotional anguish. Uh, and of course, there's no end to the list of things that can cause worry. But perhaps, well, to, to have a job that you enjoy. You actually get up and go to work with a smile on your face each day. That, that's something of comfort. Uh, to have a salary high enough not to have money worries of course, the reality is we've never got enough, have we? And even if you got a 50% pay rise by this time next year, you'd soon want more. To be able to afford to have a good holiday each year. To buy your kids all the things they want for birthday and for Christmas. That, that's what it means to live in comfort. In other words, comfort... I think for most people, is the, it's actually the absence of certain things, isn't it, largely? It's the absence of affliction. It's the absence of troubles. It's the absence of anxieties. It's the absence of difficult circumstances. But we discover in Paul's opening remarks that he seems to be talking about comfort not as something which we have most in the absence of affliction, but actually something that we have most when we're right in the thick of it, which is not how the world thinks, not how the world would choose to have it, 
Is that what he's saying? And if he is, how can that be? That just doesn't seem to make sense, does it? That it's actually in affliction that we find the greatest comfort. But why does he even begin like this, talking about suffering? Well, I think there's a few things that we could give in response to that. For one thing, this testimony which he brings is actually one of the evidences of his faithfulness as a minister of Christ. These great hardships that he's endured, they're one of the marks of a faithful minister of Christ. The sufferings that he has endured are not a sign that God has abandoned him. And they're not a sign that he's, he's been lacking in faith. Quite the opposite is the case because of these sufferings. Here is a life that has been given over to the service of Christ, no matter what the cost. And the situation in the Corinthian church and their growing attitude towards him, which seems to be that under the influence of others, he is going down in their estimation. They also need to be aware of the distress that that's causing him. But they too are a church in distress. And Paul wants to reassure them that they can find and know comfort in their tribulation and that he is qualified to bring that comfort to them and to show them where and how they may find it. So let's look at what he says and from these verses I just want to draw out five lessons and here's the first one. The source of all comfort. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. The end of verse 4, we ourselves are comforted by God. The source of all comfort. When things go wrong in life, that's how they that's how we perceive it, don't we? Things have gone wrong. When trials hit us. And when in such circumstances, the things which we routinely look to for comfort are laid bare as being totally unable to bring us any kind of relief at all, where do people turn? What do people turn to? They discover that actually having a nice house and a nice car and a nice job and lots of money in the bank, actually those things are not, not enough. That, and when this trouble hits them, those things do nothing to help. What do they turn to? Well, some people turn to each other. Well, that's not a bad thing, is it? To turn to one another. But there's only so much that we can do for each other. And if you've ever been the one that someone else turns to for help, in the middle of the deepest of trials, uh, you know what inadequacy feels like. <laughs> we turn to each other for help. And that's not a bad thing. But which of us are sufficient, really, to provide much comfort to the other? 
Some, of course, turn to alcohol. The phrase, drown your sorrows, is a very accurate description, actually, of what some people really do try to do. They really do. Uh, A singer recently hit the headlines. Her name is Dolores O'Riordan. She was the lead singer of the group The Cranberries, which means absolutely nothing to most of you, but some of the younger ones know who she is. She drowned in her bath in a hotel room after a huge drinking session, all on her own. Was it an accident? Seems likely that it was, but no one can be certain. What drives a reasonably well-off, successful young woman to lock herself in a hotel room all on her own and drink to the point that when she gets in the bath, she falls unconscious and drowns in it? What's going on in the mind of a young woman like that? And what help was anything that she had of this world? It's tragic, isn't it? Where do we get comfort from? Some turn to drugs. Some people have them prescribed. I'm not denying for one minute there can be a right and proper place for prescribed medication. Such things can have their place under the proper supervision. But far too many, far too many end up as chronic, chronic, long-term users addicted to the stuff. And people turn to all kinds of other things as well, don't they? And the reason they carry on using them all the time because they just can't find that that problem will go away, whatever it is. Some put all their energies into work. I remember the explorer Sir Ranulph Fiennes being interviewed a couple of years after his wife had passed away. And he was asked how he was coping with her death. This is what he said. I just work so I don't have to think. I just work so I don't have to think. Because left on his own, with his own thoughts, couldn't cope. So work, 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 work. Occupy every minute of every day so I just don't have to think. The Bible teaches that the place to turn is a person. And the Bible teaches that that person is God. Because he's the God of all comfort. But which God? Who's God? Lots of gods out there. Which God? Verse 3. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
that narrows down the field. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that simple phrase actually provides a very clear and distinct definition of the God Paul is referring to. Read through the Gospels, including the genealogies in Matthew and Luke, and the link between Christ and the promises of God made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob are unmissable and unquestionable. And things like those boring genealogies, that's precisely why they're there. For any who think they're a waste of ink. You can know exactly who Jesus is. This God is the God of the Hebrews scriptures. Whose promise of a saviour was fulfilled in Christ. This is the God Paul is talking about. This God is therefore the one who is the true God. The God most high. The creator of all things. The one who saw I, the one who Isaiah saw being worshipped by the angels. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is the God that Paul is speaking of. This God sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. This God is the father of all comfort and no other. Notice with care, please, that the place Paul ascribes to the persons of the Godhead here. This comfort he's going to speak about has its origin in the Father. In the Father. These details are important. The Godhead, the three persons who are one God, each of them equally God in all his fullness, yet but one God, these three persons are significant. Where the Bible makes plain and clear the different roles and functions that these three persons in the Godhead have, it's the height of arrogance towards God to ignore them and pretend it doesn't matter. It does matter. God the Father is the source of all comfort. It's brought to you by means of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's made effective in you through the outworking of his Holy Spirit. The Father himself is the source. It takes the triune God for you to know it and experience it. But the Father is the source of all comfort. The Father of mercies. Where can the soul that is oppressed and distressed and desperate for comfort turn? To him. To him. There's comfort to be found in him. The one who did not spare even sending his own son into the world to suffer and die in the place of sinners. That's how much he loves. And it's he who not only is the source of all comfort, it's he who stands ready to bring it. It's found in God the Father and nowhere else. Number two, the reason for Christian suffering. And the word Christian is added there intentionally. In addition to all the regular troubles and griefs that all people face, that's part of living in a sinful world. All of us face troubles and griefs. But in addition to those things, Christian believers will know very particular troubles and afflictions. And they are a direct result of knowing and loving and following Christ. The world, for the most part, hated Christ. 
the world for the most part still does. The world afflicted him. And we, being in union with him, are called to walk the same path that he walked. For that reason, Paul describes them as the sufferings of Christ. These are sufferings because he's a Christian. For that reason, Christ once said to Paul, when Paul was persecuting the church, why do you persecute me? Because there's this union between Christ and the believer, between Christ and his church. To attack the church is to attack Christ. When Christians suffer, Christ is suffering with you. To be a Christian is to expect that the world will attack you, just as they attacked him. Because as you now stand in Christ and for Christ, you stand for everything he stood for. And the world hated it. And they'll hate us. And the New Testament is full of this teaching. We read in Philippians, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ. Now, this sentence begins as if God has done some great favour. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ. Oh, wonderful. What's coming next? To believe in him. Wonderful. But not only that, to suffer for him. Philippians chapter 1. It's been granted to you to suffer for him. I want to know Christ, says Paul. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, because that's what it means to belong to him, becoming like him in his death. Because Christ is so worth knowing that even if it means being joined to him in his sufferings, those sufferings are worth it. If it means I can have him and be part of him. To Timothy, in chapters 1 and 2, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Paul's writing in chains. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel. He invites Christians, join with me, join me. In suffering for the gospel, by the power of God. That's important. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Come and join us. Why? To suffer. Not the best strap line in some people's eyes. Hebrews chapter 10. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Mm. That would be a bit of a challenge for some of us, I think. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. 1 Peter chapter 1. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But greatly rejoicing. This Christian life is like no other, isn't it? In 1 Peter chapter 2, it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because 
Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. There's lots of things that pop into our minds when we think about following Christ as our example. The suffering bit is something we'd rather not include, but the Bible does. If you hear any preacher painting a picture of the Christian life which denies these truths, give him a wide, wide berth, or her, because whichever gospel it is they're preaching, it's not the gospel of the Bible. We're engaged in a spiritual battle against an enemy who seeks the downfall of Christians and the downfall of Christ's church. And conflict and opposition will come because we've been united with Christ in his sufferings. These are the sufferings of Christ. They abound in us says Paul in verse 5. Number three, here's an important one. Well, they're all important, aren't they? Comfort accompanies suffering. Comfort accompanies suffering. Now, some people in rebellion against a God who would permit anyone to suffer and say that they want nothing to do with him, interestingly, they also remove themselves, therefore, from the one place where all comfort is found. I want nothing to do with this God if he's going to make me suffer. And in turning their back on God, they're actually walking away from the one place where they're going to find comfort. It's abundantly clear in these verses that when Paul speaks of comfort or consolation, he's not talking about the removal of suffering. He's talking about comfort in the midst of suffering. You see, this is a comfort that is not the way the world thinks of comfort. This is a comfort of faith and trust for the soul. This is a comfort in which all doubt and fear is removed. This is a comfort which assures you that God has not abandoned or forsaken you. This is a comfort which enables a Christian to embrace suffering and endure it and be able to sing praises in the prison at midnight like Paul and Silas did. This is a comfort which comes in being more convinced than ever of God's love for you. Even in your struggles and of God's care for you, even when your physical circumstances might seem to suggest the opposite is true. But it isn't. It isn't. And God brings this comfort to us. This is the comfort we find in the Father. This is a comfort which brings the faith that God is using, even your distress, to work out his purposes, to accomplish his will, and to purify and strengthen you in the things of God. And in all of these things, God brings comfort in the midst of trials and in the midst of struggles. This is the comfort that enabled Jesus to be fast asleep in the middle of the boat while the storm was raging all around. How can you do that? By turning to God the Father, admitting that you need him, because you certainly can't do this. Cry out to him, acknowledge your great need and call out to him by looking to Christ, remembering how Christ suffered for you because of his love for you. 
recognizing afresh what a glorious privilege it is to be in union with the Lord Jesus Christ and to suffer for his cause. When you think about how all that he endured for you. And here is Paul's testimony in these verses. When the suffering came, so too came the comfort in equal measure and more besides. Verse 5, as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds. Oh, the sufferings have been huge. The sufferings have been great. Ah, but the comfort came in equal measure. The comfort came through the suffering, because of the suffering, while we were suffering. Then the comfort comes. Comfort accompanies suffering in the Christian life. Number four, my comfort for your encouragement. My comfort for your encouragement. Yes, but I'm not like that. How often I've heard that phrase said about Christian things. Yes, but I'm not like that. People hear a certain exhortation from the scripture. Yes, but I'm not like that. They hear something that the Bible makes clear is required of a child of God, one who's following Christ. Ah, yes, but I'm not like that. They hear of some quality of character, the fruit of the Holy Spirit that ought to be seen in the life of a Christian. Ah, but I'm not like that. God exhorts you to rejoice always in all things. Ah, yes, but I'm not like that, someone says. He calls you to take up the cross and follow him no matter what. Ah, yes, I know, but I'm not like that. He promises Christian affliction that you must endure. Ah, yes, but I'm not like that. But can you not actually see what Paul is saying here? What Paul is actually saying is, yes, I'm like that too. I'm like that too. But you see, it's God who will do this. God will do this in you, for you, to you, through you. I'm just like you, says Paul. I can't do it either. That's not me. But God can. The God of all comfort, the God of all strength, the God of all grace, he will do it in you. He will produce this in you. And Paul's testimony is, he's done it for me. He'll do it for you. Look at the comfort that I've received. Look at the circumstances I've been in. And listen to my testimony of God's comfort to me in the midst of those troubles. He's done it for me. He'll do it for you. That's his testimony. For your encouragement. For my encouragement. Paul says you can endure exactly what I have endured. Because your God is my God. And he's the one who does it. He can bring you exactly the same comfort that he's given me. Look at his language in verse 7. Our hope for you is steadfast because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so also you will partake of the consolation. That's Paul's confidence in his God. That's his confidence in God the Father. God will do for you what he's done for me. Because there's nothing special about me. Everything is special about God. And Christians who know of these things can be of real help to others. Verse 4. That we may be able to comfort those 
who are in any trouble, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. If you're someone who keeps running away from any kind of suffering, no, 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 that's not for me. That's not what I signed up for. That's not who I am. How are you ever going to be of comfort to anyone else? You'll know nothing of these things. But Christians who know this comfort, because they've been in the struggles, they'll be able to help others. If you have a concern for the Lord's people, part of your attitude in the midst of your suffering is that God is equipping you to be of help to others in the future. Because some of them will be called to walk the same path that you've walked. And if you've walked it, hard as it was, but you've known God's comfort. Oh, how you've known God's comfort. You can walk alongside them and put an arm around their shoulder and say, brother, sister, listen, I know what it's like, but let me tell you what God will do for you. Can't you? This is Paul's testimony. And this is, as, this is his encouragement to the church. This is another way that God brings his comfort to his people. By using one of his children to bring comfort to another of his children. It's like an experienced climber taking someone up a rock face. The experienced climber knows all the hand and footholds. And he's right alongside you as he takes you up the cliff for the very first time. Put that hand there, put that foot there, put that hand there, put that foot there. That, and the next thing you know, you're at the top. And how did that happen? Well, you had someone alongside. And the Christian who knows God's comfort comes alongside the afflicted brother or sister. And with their arm around them, they, shares that, they share that comfort that they have known with them. Come here. Do this. Look at this scripture. Look at this promise. Let me pray with you. When I was 16, a 17-year-old girl in our youth group at church died of leukemia. And in the years that followed, again and again, her Christian mum and dad were used of God to bring comfort to bereaved grieving parents we've been there we know how it feels but we found comfort let, let us share with you the source of our comfort from God the Father that's what Paul's talking about and this has been Paul's testimony and with this testimony he wants to strengthen and encourage the Corinthian church. And he wants to strengthen and encourage Belvedere Road Church too. One final point. From verse 8 through to verse 11. The apostle there you see talks about the trouble that came to them in Asia. See this is the mark of true Christian service in any Christian whether you're an apostle or not. So severe has Paul's affliction been, there have been times when he was convinced that it was about to cost him his very life at any moment. He really believed on occasions that he was staring death in the face. Now, when he talks about Asia, he's probably got in mind a time in Ephesus 
when the depth of hatred and opposition that was waged against him was unbelievably intense. And you see, when you find yourself there, there's only one option open to you, and that's to trust in God. And that's Paul's testimony. We had the sentence of death in ourselves, verse 9. That's not that he had been legally sentenced to death, but they were just convinced, this is it. This, this is going to cost us our lives. They're going to kill us. We had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. When you find yourself there, there is only one option open to you, and that's to trust in God. To believe that if the purposes that he has for you in this life are not yet over, then he will indeed save you and deliver you, as he did Paul on that occasion. God's purposes for Paul were not yet completed. And Paul just put himself into the hands of God and found great comfort there. Even in such a place as that, you can find rest and peace for heart and mind and be delivered. And if it is time for you to give up this mortal flesh, well, heaven awaits, which is far better. So whichever way this is going to go, there is comfort in God for the Christian. When you just put everything in his hands, just give it all to him and trust in him. That's what Paul did. And there he found his place of comfort for his soul. This is the God who has literally raised the physically dead, including, of course, his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the God who has raised each believer from spiritual death and imparted to us new life and imputed to us Christ's righteousness. And the deliverance from death that Paul is talking about here is that conviction that he had that this was about to be the end for them all. But God was even there where the situation seemed so, so hopeless. God was even able to deliver them from that. What comfort they were given. And as this little section concludes at verse 11, as we're going to close it this evening, you see also what he says here, you also helping together in prayer for us. And despite all the problems that there are in the Corinthian church, he knows that these believers have been praying for him. And he acknowledges the place that the prayers of those people, even with all of their problems, the place of the prayers of those people has been enormous. Thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. Oh, God was gracious to us. He answered your prayers. And many people are giving thanks because of the way God has answered your prayers. You see, the prayers of God's people have a crucial place in all of this too. You in your prayers can be a means of God's grace in him bringing comfort to another believer. And what thanks will then be given as believers hear of how God has answered such prayers? Comfort instead of affliction and trouble? That's not the path that Christ walked. 
And it's not the path that he's called you to walk either. Comfort in the midst of affliction. Comfort that is more than a match for your trouble. That's God's way. That's what glorifies him because he's the God of all comfort. And as your life gives testimony of that, it glorifies him. Only God, your loving Father, could have done that. That's the conclusion that Christ wants people to come to. That's the conclusion that Paul wanted the Corinthians to come to about his own testimony. And by means of your life, as you experience your heavenly Father's comfort, that's the comfort that you can bring to other Christians. And that's the testimony that you can be to a watching world. Well, may the Lord help us to learn from the example of his servant.